Good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, last week, uh, we took a little time to honor and pray for uh, uh, and commission Dan and Gabby Dorson um, as they are moving to Illinois. And so before we dive into the word this morning, uh, I want to kind of uh, touch on the fact that, you know, we, we mentioned that you know, Gabby has been our Risen Kids director for some time. And so um, you may have wondered, what's going on with that role if she's moving to Illinois? And so uh, I'm actually really excited this morning to announce that Miss Reed Allen, no relation to me, that I know of, um, <laughs> uh, will be uh, our new Risen Kids director. Yeah. So I want to welcome her. Let's give her a hand. She can come on up here. Give her a hand as she comes up front. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited. We want to uh, welcome her, and I want to pray for her, and uh, she's stepping into this role. Uh, she's actually been serving in this role for a while now, and so uh, God really continues to provide for us as he raises up leaders from within our church. I'm so thankful for that, and we're very thankful and excited for uh, what God has for us, and for Reed, and for our kids, and all the things. So, um, would you please stretch out a hand as a show of support and embrace, and uh, let's, let's pray for Reed. God, we thank you so much for the way that you have um, orchestrated our lives, the way that you've orchestrated our church, the way that you are sovereign and that you are a provider and that you have even provided an anointing and a heart to serve whom you declare are the greatest in the kingdom. And these kids, Lord, and I ask that you would even shower, read with an anointing to see them and to love them and to lead others to do the same. And I pray that as she's doing that, that she wouldn't just be loving these children, she wouldn't just be partnering with parents to be the primary disciples of these children, but that she would be serving you, that she would ultimately doing, be doing all of this because she loves you, because she's savoring you, and so she's serving what she's savoring in you. And so God, I, I, I ask that you would surround her with people who support her in that and point her to you in that. Um, and so, God, we just thank you for the opportunity to partner together in this gospel. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Give her another hand. So if the Lord has placed on your heart to serve in Risen Kids Ministry, I know that Reed would love to connect with you. Um, it is actually a great opportunity to, as I said while we were praying, serve Jesus uh, and make a lasting kingdom impact that goes way beyond just like babysitting, right? Like that's not all we do. Like we, we, we're not just down there doing child care. Yes, we care for children, but we do it in a way um, that points them to Jesus. And so uh, the, the truths that we declare over them and we pray over our children matter a lot. And uh, I will say this, I know this as a parent, um, our children are taking in way more than you might think right? Um, as many of you know, serving Jesus by serving children isn't always easy, right? So, it, it, in fact, if you miss the why behind the what in serving children, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to get discouraged. As a parent in life in general, like, if you miss the why behind the what, you're headed for burnout, especially in serving kids, right? So like, this, it, it, I, this isn't, hear me, this is like oftentimes you'll go to churches and they're like, serving kids is great, and it is, but that's not, like you're not going to get a sugar-coated pitch from me to serve kids in, in Risen Kids um, as if it's like always like sunshine and bluebirds, right? Like, 
Like every child floats down there each morning with like a perfect smiling face, like obediently ready to soak in every spiritual truth that you have to give them. Like that's not how it works always, right? Like there are definitely moments where the clear uh, like gospel is downloading into their little hearts and you can see it. Um, but there's also moments where it seems like their, their parents just injected pure sugar in them before they walked into the class, right? They're bouncing off the walls and you're just kind of like, are you here right now? And it's like, no, not no, no, you know? Um, I will say that that is often what pastoring is like, too. So, <laughs> um, and just life in general, right? This is how things can be. But the good news is we're not called to serve one another and love one another only when it's not difficult or personally fulfilling, right? Think about this. Like, in fact, Jesus knew how difficult and even sacrificial, even specifically children, serving children can be, loving children can be, and he spoke to his disciples in a way saying, hey, the way you serve one another and the way you love my people is like serving one of these as he puts a child in his lap. And so Mark 9, we talked about this a little bit last week, um, but I want you to see it again. And yes, this is like an intro to all the stuff we're going to talk about this morning, but um, this is not our main passage, but I want you to see this passage again because it really relates to what we're talking about. Mark 9, verse 35, it says this, Jesus sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Okay? So they've been arguing about who's the greatest of them at this point. And this is what Jesus, how Jesus responds to them. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. God Almighty. Not, not, not just an, like, being like, oh man, I did a good thing today. But what you did was you worshipped God. That's what he's saying. So I want you to notice that when Jesus calls us to serve, he emphasizes that it's not just about the task at hand. It's about a much bigger picture. It's not just accomplishing a task for the sake of accomplishing a task and making yourself feel good. He's saying that when you do these things, you're actually serving the creator of eternity. He says you're serving me, as in Jesus, not John Allen, okay? Like he's saying when you love on them, you're loving on me. He actually used this kind of language a lot. Like what you do for the least of these, you do for me. And Jesus knows that we have a tendency to lose sight of the why behind the what when it comes to serving each other or serving him in general. And so he's pointing us to the ultimate why behind the what. And that why behind the what, the purpose behind it all, is himself. So when people talk about burning out, it's often uh, not because they're working too hard. right? It's because they've lost sight of why, or better yet, who they're ultimately serving to begin with. Like, now I'm not saying we don't need seasons of rest, right? But I, I am saying that even that rest is designed to, or should be designed to restore your vision of who Jesus is and why he's called you to do what he's called you to do. And that's not about, it's not just relating to church, right? Like this is in everything. Like my hope, my prayer, your life should be what God's called it to be. You're doing what God's called you to do, whether that's the military, whether you're a doctor, whether you're an attorney, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Maybe you're not even, it doesn't have anything to do with your career. Maybe it's got something to do with just like what stage of life you're in. Maybe you're waiting and that's what God's called you to do is just wait. Right? Don't lose the why behind the what in that. 
It may just be because he said so. That's good enough because he's good enough. This is extremely important in any kind of ministry work, especially, right? Like the point of our risen kids ministry isn't just watching people's kids so they can survive without them during the service, right? Like the, the point is that even ultimately it, it's not about you or even the children. The point is Jesus. The point is that he cares about them more than we do. He cares about this church ultimately even more than we do. He cares more about setting up those partitions downstairs and patiently, consistently pointing them to his love and grace. And, and, and he cares about all these things more than we do. Like This applies, again, to everything we do as a church and everything we do in our lives. It's not about being impressive. It's not just about accomplishing the task at hand. You want to burn out? You want to be really, like, depressed in your job? Then forget why you're there. Right? There's nothing worse than a job that you, it's just pointless. That's, you're inevitably going to be like, what am I doing with my life? And if you're not, maybe you should be. Right? And that doesn't mean that your job is pointless. It doesn't mean quit. It means Figure out what the why behind the what is. Does that make sense? And recognize that it's about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're bagging groceries. That's about Jesus. In fact, Jesus probably has a lot to say about someone who's bagging groceries with a smile and loving people as they're getting their food. There's probably a great ministry opportunity there. Right? So it's all about Jesus. We don't just serve Jesus here. We savor him. That's what makes serving worship. And so this doesn't just apply, again, to risen church. It carries over into every area of life. Like, after all, again, the earth is the Lord's, and everything that's in it belongs to him. That's why Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, whatever you do, say whatever. There's a difference in this whatever and the way that a lot of people use it. Yeah, it's like Whatever the opposite of that right whatever whatever you do right work heartily as for the lord and not for men knowing that from the lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward you are serving the lord christ it's all worship it's all worship again it becomes a board a burden maybe a burden too there's a word <laughs> um, it, but it becomes a burden, a source of burnout when we lose sight of that bigger picture, right? That's when it's meaningless, pointless. And then we begin to despair, and then that bitter burnout creeps in. So this morning, we're going to continue through our series in John called Sharing Life Like Christ. And we're going to do this by looking at a powerful interaction between Jesus and a woman named Martha. This woman had a, a strong tendency to lose sight of the bigger picture because she was so focused on the task at hand. She had a tendency to miss the why behind the what, which also led her to miss Jesus in the process. And so this morning, we're going to look at the way Jesus consistently meets her in that struggle and points her to himself. We're often just familiar with one uh, scene where this takes place, but I want to show you that it happens multiple times at least twice 
So in this series, we've been looking at specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John in order to really drink in who Jesus is and the way that he interacts with us today. Because the way he interacted with them then is the same way he interacts with us now because we serve a living God, an interactive God. And so the point of this entire series has been about experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is, not how this world presents him, not even how we think he might be or should be or could be or ethereal ideas that are just kind of subjective depending on our experiences, but who he truly is and how he truly is and what he's truly like. And so we let his word speak for itself as we behold and are encountered by the risen Christ. But again, in order to share life, with others like Christ, which we've all been called to do, you first have to share life in Christ. Say, in Christ. Christ. We'll come back to that. Now, I realized that last week we did finish the last chapter of John 21, which is the last chapter in the book of John, and some of you are like, didn't we finish this series? Um, (laughs) But this morning, we're actually going to drop back to John 11 to look at this interaction between Jesus and Martha that God apparently wanted us to save for today, okay? Um, so Martha is a classic, again, she's a classic case of somebody headed for bitterness and burnout. And yet Jesus meets her there, even in the most desperate and depressed scenario. And he patiently and he consistently points her to the point of it all, which is himself. Maybe some of you are there this morning. I want to point you to Jesus this morning. Jesus wants to point you to himself. That's what I want you to see, that Jesus is the why behind the what. I want you to see and trust that no matter what you're after, whether it's completing the task at hand or providing for your friends or family or serving people well or maybe even striving for that breakthrough healing for yourself or someone you love or that thing that seems just out of reach that if I can just get there, things will be okay, those things can preoccupy our hearts. They can blind us even to the point of it all, which is Jesus himself, who's not over there. He's right here, now. So this morning we're going to actually look at, again, two interactions that Jesus has with Martha. Our main passage is going to be John 11, verses 1 through 27, but we're also going to briefly look at a previous interaction that Jesus has with Martha in Luke 10, verse 38 and 42. So here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else Here's what I want you to get. Get it on the screen? Yeah, beautiful. Jesus isn't just a powerful means to another end. He is the end. And knowing him is the point. When we miss Jesus, or when you miss Jesus, you will miss true meaning and purpose altogether. Okay? And when we miss Jesus, we miss meaning and edit. There you go. Jesus isn't just a powerful means to another end. He is the end, and knowing him is the point. When you miss Jesus, you miss true meaning and purpose altogether. So, okay, this is what I want you to get. So, quick roadmap for the rest of our time. i got four things, four things we learned from Christ's interaction with Martha. You guys ready? You want all four? means i got to get started. Here we go. The first one. Sometimes God loves us by not answering our prayers when we want or the way we want. Number two, when serving Jesus is detached from savoring Jesus, then it becomes more about yourself than your Savior. 
Number three, all that you're looking for is found in Jesus. Whether you're at a funeral or a festival, Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is the life. And finally, which is like the summary of the entire series, in order to share life like Christ, you must first share life in Christ. Say, in Christ. Turn with me to John 11. Let's start with verse 1. And let's set the context here for Christ's interaction with Martha. Here we go. Verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Okay, so he's setting the scene here, and he's recalling a story that many who were reading this originally, the original audience of John's gospel or John's account of Jesus' life um, here, like they would have been familiar with this account of the woman, uh, of Martha in Bethany, right? And Mary and Martha in Bethany. He's saying this is the same Mary and this is the same Martha. These are the same sisters that uh, we read about in different versions in these other Gospels, right? And so John actually in his account is going to talk about that event where she wipes his feet with her hair um, or anoints and anoints uh, his feet and anoints his body. He's going to talk about that in John 12, okay? We'll get there. But here he's just setting the context for who this family is. And he's saying you're familiar with them. You know these people, okay? Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you want to go there again? In other words, if we go back to Bethany, which is right outside of Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. And we know they did. Verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, Jesus is basically saying, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Okay? I'm the light of the world. I got this. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Like, we don't need to risk our lives if he's just fallen asleep. He's going to wake up on his own. It's cool. Let's stay here. Right? Verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. It's almost as though Jesus values belief as something more valuable even than comfort or relief from suffering. That's important. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Now, we can't be sure if he's talking about Lazarus here or Jesus, right? Because he's like, if Jesus goes, they're going to kill him. Let's just go and die with him. He could be talking about Lazarus. Let's go and die with him because if we go there, they're going to kill us all, right? That's literally, that may be Thomas's mindset. It probably is. And as we've seen Thomas's interactions with Jesus and sort of his mindset and how he dealt with those things, that makes sense, right? Because remember, these guys were looking for a revolution, and Jesus was a revolutionary leader, but the kind of revelation they got was way beyond anything they imagined, which is often the case with Jesus. It's almost like we have to trust him or something. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. So the first point here. Sometimes God loves us by not answering our prayers when we want or the way we want. Now, on the surface, it seems like Jesus is too late here, right? Like, it seems like just kind of like he let Lazarus die. Like, like, if Jesus is God in the flesh, which he is, then he had the power to save Lazarus. And it would seem like that, that he intentionally chose not to. But why? Lean in. I want you to lean in here because this is, this is at the core of so much bitterness in our world. Like, why did Jesus let this happen? Like, how could you? Where were you? You ever felt like this? I, I have. Like, you could have stopped it, but you didn't. Why not? I mean, he could have easily come earlier. He could have healed Lazarus with a word at a distance. He could have just, he did it before. He's healed. He didn't even have to travel. He's done it before. He's God in the flesh. He could have done it. Why didn't he? We know he didn't. He didn't. Verse 6 even tells us that when Jesus received the news that Lazarus was sick and dying, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Like, think about this. It would have taken about a day for the messenger that Mary and Martha sent to Jesus to get there. Then Jesus waited two more days where he was, and then it would have taken another day for them to travel to Bethany. So Lazarus had been dead for four days, four very long, desperate, and dark days, as would have been the days leading up to that death. But where's Jesus? A lot of suffering and death and grieving has taken place over the last few days for this family, and it seems that Jesus intentionally lets it all just play out. But why? Like often when people experience pain like this, they make a huge assumption. They say either God isn't able or he doesn't care. And then the worst assumption of all of it is they'll say either way it's too late now. Which is like the battle cry of the bitter. This account shows us that Jesus is neither unable nor uncaring. And if you know anything about this story, you know that it's definitely not too late. Look back at verse 5 and 6. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So, 
when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. The Greek word for so here is the word un, which literally means therefore. Okay? Like, in other words, Jesus didn't just stay two days longer because he was preoccupied. He didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't like, I got more important things to do, right? It says he loved them, therefore he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He, he didn't do it because he's a jerk. He did it because he loved them. That may be difficult to swallow. You don't look at me, this is what the Bible says. Like, like, if he loved them, why would he allow them to experience so much pain and suffering and even death? Like, how could he love us when he allows these kinds of things to happen in our lives? Like, I mean, this would have been extremely traumatic for all of the people involved in this. Like, Lazarus died. Like, he died. He didn't just get sick and recover. The man died. And the whole family walked through this. Their brother became so ill that he died, and it seemed like Jesus was nowhere to be found. They cried out, they called out, they sent for him, but he delayed, and he did it intentionally. Why? Because he loved them? What? Like, do you know what death is like? It's horrible. It's unnatural. We're not designed for it. Death is the result of sin. Death is the enemy. So why didn't Jesus stop it? Why didn't he drop everything and rush to save his friends and the pain and the suffering of it all? Why does he make them wait? Like even if he knew that he would raise Lazarus from the grave, why would he allow them to experience so much suffering in the process? Like they didn't even have the painkillers that we do today. Like death by illness would have been more brutal than we could even fathom in this, at that point in time. Like, they had to just watch their strong brother essentially get eaten alive by disease. And there was nothing they could do. All they could do was cry out to God and plead for Jesus to come, and he refused until it was seemingly too late. Like, this isn't the 11th hour here, it's the 13th. And this isn't the only time we see something like this happen. Like, the only other record that we have of Jesus raising someone from the dead other than Lazarus is a 12-year-old girl in Mark 5. Little girl, this little girl's at the point of death, and her daddy is rushing Jesus to heal her. He comes against Jesus. He's like, my, my daughter's at the point of death. Come quickly, right? And so Jesus is coming, and then he seems to intentionally delay and give attention to a seemingly less important issue. And while he does, the little girl dies. Sweet 12-year-old girl. And then, and then this close family friend, Lazarus, why would he delay? Again, because he had something more important to do? No, because he loved them. What, what does that even mean, though? Like, and, then, and then here, just in case you're not getting all of this, right? Just in case you're like, I get it, I, I, I've dealt with all this. Like, I need the solution here. I want you to wait. I want you to get this and drink this in. Because on top of all of it, it's compounded by verse 15, which even tells us that Jesus was glad that he wasn't there to stop Lazarus from dying. Like, what? Why? Are we sure Jesus isn't just a jerk? 
This isn't looking good. It's really starting to seem like Jesus is more kind of like that kid from Toy Story that's like sadistically torturing all his toys. Right? But is that who God is? Mean kid with a magnifying glass, burning ants? Is that how God, is that who God is? No. No. No, it's not. But God knew that this would be hard for us to grasp, which is why we're actually given the reason for why he does what he does and why he's glad that it's all happening the way that it's happening. It's because he loves them and because there's something greater being orchestrated by the Father that will end in great glory. But how? Like, it's easier to get the glory part, right? Like, I can get the glory part. Like, it'll all work out in the end. I get it. Like, that's true, and that's fantastic, and that's huge, and that's important, and I'm not negating that. Honestly, if that's all that it's about, then it's all worth it, right? God's glory is fully enough. He's God. He created this thing. He can do what he wants. He gets the glory. Beautiful. But the most glorious part about this is that it's all done in love, like he gets the most glory because of the love involved. That's what's most glorious about this. But how could this be an act of love? That's what it says. Like the fact that this is hard for us to comprehend isn't proof of how twisted God is, but how twisted we are and how twisted our concept of love is. Okay? Like, we tend to think that love, to love someone or be loved by someone, is mean, it means like you always do everything they want all the time. <laughs> right? Like, we think that to love somebody is to meet their every need and alleviate their every sorrow and cater to their every will at all times forever and ever. Amen. Like, if you love me, you'll affirm my every emotion and my every desire, whether it's actually true or good or healthy or not. And if you don't, if you don't affirm my lifestyle, if you don't affirm or meet all of my demands immediately, then you must clearly hate me. One author summed up the religion of subjective, self-centered, false love, <laughs> which is basically our culture, society right now, by saying, happiness is the ultimate goal, feelings are the ultimate guide, judging is the ultimate sin, and God is the ultimate guess. Because there can be no real truth in him. If happiness is the ultimate goal, feelings are the ultimate guide, and judging is the ultimate sin. Right? Think about that. Don't judge me. You can't judge me. This thing is subjective. You don't know how I feel. There can be no truth. There can be no solution. There can be no answer. And therefore, there can be no true love. Like, if God doesn't make me healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, he must hate me. And to the extent that those things happen in my life, it's a reflection of how much God loves me. How much faith I have. Right? That's not the gospel. Therefore, if I face any suffering or pain or struggle, it couldn't be because God wants to refine my faith or our relationship and draw me close to him, delivering me from that fickle, hollow pursuit in this world. It must be because he hates me. Because if he loved me, why would he let these things happen to me? And yet, here we see that he let these things happen precisely because he loved them. You see, God is way more concerned with our level of intimacy and joy in him than he is with our level of comfort and ease in this world. I want you to get that. 
God is way more concerned with our level of intimacy and joy in him than he is with our level of comfort and ease in this world. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't deliver or heal or he doesn't love to lavish good gifts on his children. Like, he does. He does all the time. But we should continue to cry, and, and, not but, and because of that, because he loves to give good gifts to his children, we should continue to cry out and pray for those things. Press into those things. He's a good father. But God loves you too much to let you become so intoxicated with the things of this world that we become numb to the only one that they are designed to point us to, which is himself. This sinful world will always point you to yourself. It'll make you the center and focus of everything. It'll make you focus on how things make you feel or how others are treating you or it'll rattle your insecurities and then provoke your anxieties by making life all about you and then you feel like you got to control everything around you and everyone around you and if you can't you're in danger it'll even take something as god glorifying and joyful as serving others and make it all about yourself which then sucks the joy right out of it like, like, you know, I, I'm just not getting anything out of serving those kids. You know, it's just not doing anything for me. Because you're not, they're, they're not there to serve you. Right? Like, that's just being so consumed with self that you miss the point of serving entirely. Like, were you expecting the children to serve you? Like, to show up in the class, like, the toddler's room, and the kids are like, did you have a good morning? Do you need a snack? Like you, need, you seem tired, Mr. So-and-so. Can, do you need a hug? Like, like, maybe. Now, there are some kids in our church that I feel like might do that, right? <laughs> um, but it sounds silly, but it, it's amazing how self-centered the human heart can get, right? Like, serving reminds us that it's not about us. It's about tapping into God's love for others. Like, that's the only way we get real joy in serving to begin with. And when we do that, we also then tap into his love for us in a powerful way because it's like tapping into the power of a river, right? P.S., that didn't come from anyone in our church, by the way. Like, that's not an encounter that I've had in this particular church. Um, In fact, I would say that I I, I love deeply how uh, authentic the joy of serving Jesus is in our church. I truly do. Like, I love the way that our church savors the love of God as we serve it up to other people. That's what makes it authentic here, right? Amen? Now, that doesn't mean we can't lose sight of it at times. I think we all do lose sight of it at times. And when we do, that's when we're headed for a real crash. That's what burnout looks like. Burnout comes from losing sight of the why behind the what and the point, which is Jesus, right? So it's been a privilege, again, to watch so many intentionally um, rally around each other in our church and point each other to that why behind the what of who he is. Because when things do get twisted in on ourselves, no matter what environment you're in, whether it's church or work or Thanksgiving at your in-laws, right? Like, no matter what it is, like, the answer isn't just to, like, bow out, check out, and, like, I need a break. Like, sometimes it is. I get it. Like, I'm not saying don't do that stuff. Like, there are moments, but the answer, even in those moments, is to lift our eyes and behold the love of God and to savor him right in the midst of both serving him and even, if need be, the suffering. Again, I'm not talking about abusive or, or toxic environments. That's a totally different thing. 
I'm not saying here that there aren't even times of needed refreshment and refocus, right? There's a reason why pastors often take sabbaticals. (laughs) Like, that's a thing. But even those seasons are designed to realign with the heart of Jesus in his mission, not just check out, right? Which leads me to the second point. When serving Jesus is detached from savoring Jesus, then it becomes more about yourself than your Savior. Now, I love it when the server at a restaurant, like, have you ever been to a restaurant and the server like, like, loves the food at that restaurant? You know what I'm talking about. Like, it, it, like I, I, we, had a, we had a server not too long ago. We go to a restaurant, and he's just like, he loved it. I'm like, hey, what's good here? And the, he was just like, this is good, and this is good, and this is good. And I'm like, I don't have that much money, man. Like, <laughs> like, he really loved it. Like, you know, he was back there, like, every chance he got, he was like, I'm going to get this. You know, he's like, he's savoring what he's serving, right? And then, and then the experience is so much better because you feel loved by them because it's like their love for the food is, is completed by serving it to you because they, they love it. Like, like, you know that they're savoring what they're serving, and they, so they love what they're serving. They're not doing it just because they care about you, but because they care about what they're serving you, Okay? Like, imagine going to, a, like, a nice restaurant, and you ask the server, you know, hey, what's good on the menu? Is there anything? And it's like, nah, I don't, I don't eat here. <laughs> this place is gross. You know? Like, like, for that server, it's just a job. They're just getting a paycheck. It's totally self-oriented. And they've got to be miserable. Like, what a waste of time. They go do something else, anything else. Anything else. Like they're, they're just in it for the paycheck. It's self-oriented. Look at verse 18. Jesus arrives in Bethany, and Lazarus has been in the tomb again for four days. Verse 18. Now, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, again about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And we'll talk about Mary in another message. Hers is a very different story. And Christ's interaction with her is, though, exactly what she needs. But it is very different from his interaction with Martha. Which is just a whole statement in itself of how personal Jesus is with us. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You hear it? Where were you? Why did you let us go through that? Don't you love us? Don't you care? Remember those bitter assumptions that we tend to make about God in these circumstances? Like you're, you're either unable or you don't care. Either way, it's too late. Notice, though, that Martha doesn't take it that far. To her credit, this woman knows Jesus is fully able, and she knows Jesus loves them, and I think those truths prompt her then to say what she says next. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Some faith in that. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. She's still still can't see it. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, 
like at the end of time. See, Martha is so consumed by the situation at hand, all she wants, I want you to see this, all she wants right now is her brother to rise from the dead. And she's got faith that Jesus can do it. Okay? But that's not the point. Hear me. This society is so eaten up with, like, prosperity gospel stuff that they think that it's about your faith to get Jesus to do what you want. Martha's missing the point. Look at this. She wants her brother back. I get it. Like, I get it. She wants Lazarus back. It's like she's got tunnel vision, though. She can't see past that desire. She's suffering. She's grieving. And her hope is in Lazarus's resurrection. In her grief, she thinks that all her hope and joy come from her brother. Like, if I could just get Lazarus back, then all will be right in the world. Then my heart can be at rest. Then I can be at peace. Then I can have joy. But the pleasures forevermore do not reside in Lazarus. They're in Christ alone. And Martha's peace and her wholeness and her joy don't come through her brother's resurrection. They come through Christ's resurrection. And so the answer to all of her prayers is standing right in front of her. But she's missing him because she's so focused on what she's lost in her brother. She wants him back so bad, and yet even in the midst of her pain and in her despair, the source of all joy is right in front of her. She's trying to get Jesus to raise him from the dead right now. That's what she's doing. But she's tired of waiting. She's waited long enough in her mind. She's not ready to wait till the end of the time, right? Or the end of the age. She, Jesus is here, and she has the faith that he can raise her brother. That's not the point. There's something off about it. She's not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. She's not savoring him as her ultimate comforter. She wants something from him that is more than himself to get this because it's going to change everything he's a means to her ultimate end of getting her brother back her hope is misplaced jesus is the only one who can truly fulfill all those longings that she's placed on her brother he's right in front of her even in her pain even in her grief even in her suffering and sorrow he's right there the king of eternity who hung the stars and spoke her into existence with a word is right in front of her And Jesus wants her to see and savor him and the joy that his presence brings even in the midst of confusion and suffering. I I want you to see how Jesus loves Martha and to see how he loves you. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, remember she said, the resurrection, she's talking about the resurrection at the end of time. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, it's coming. It's going to be all right. He doesn't say, the resurrection is something that I can do. He says, everything you're hoping for in the resurrection is in me now. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying, Martha, don't miss me because you're looking for something or someone else. Even something as good as having your brother back, that's just a shadow of what you have already in me. 
It doesn't mean he's not going to do it. But it means that he wants her to get this first. All that you're hoping for on the day of resurrection, when, when everything is made right, is all found in me right now, here and now, in my presence now. Like he's saying, don't miss who I am for you today because you're looking for something else tomorrow. He's saying, I'm here right now. True life, true joy, true satisfaction is found in my presence, not in your circumstances. He's saying it's found in my presence even in the midst of your circumstances. He's saying, don't miss me, Martha. I am everlasting life. I am the resurrection and I am here. Guys, I, I want you to get this. Just because just you're suffering doesn't mean you can't also be savoring the presence of Jesus. This is why, in fact, Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Like, it doesn't mean he has to crush you in order to be present to you. That's not what it means. Like, the reason those moments give us so much clarity into his presence is because we finally let go of the false promises of this world. That's when we finally surrender into his arms to hold us instead of propping ourselves up by all the counterfeit things of this world. When things crash down, we realize, oh, they weren't really going to be there anyway. He is. That's when we finally see the one who's been there the whole time. This is how he loves Martha. He's calling her to savor him even in the suffering, just like he called her to savor him in the serving. Remember, this is the same Martha of Luke 10, verse 38 and 42. Go there with me. Look at this. It says this. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. So this was early in Christ's ministry. And just before, he's, this, just before this, he sent out 72 of his disciples, and they've just returned to him after they've gone out. They've just returned, right? So this is like a, like a, it's likely that most of them, if not all of them, have shown up with Jesus at Mary and Martha's house, okay? So get the context here. That's a lot of people, all right? And it's supposed to be a time of celebration, like God's just done amazing things through them. They're celebrating, and they, they show up, and so you've got this time of celebration, which honestly is pretty contrasted, starkly contrasted, to the time of grief that we just read about in John 11. And yet, Martha's still not celebrating. She's still in distress. She's got a ton of mouths to feed, and hospitality was a very godly and good part of their culture. You know why she's distressed? It's not because she's got a bunch of pressures, because she's missing Jesus. Same thing. Martha had lost the joy of serving Jesus and his disciples, and it had become a burden. She, she's become more concerned with herself and how she's being perceived and the anxiety of trying to control the things and the people around her, and it leads her to even lash out at her sister and use Jesus as a means to an end rather than the focus of her joy and celebration. Right? She's like, if only I had help. If only I had somebody to help me do this, I wouldn't be so behind and people wouldn't be judging me, which nobody probably even was judging her, right? Like, why won't Mary help me? It's all her fault. Anxiety often leads us then to grasp again for control over our situations and the people around us, which is exactly what Martha did. And in the process, she's missed the point entirely and she misses Jesus entirely. And then she tries to shame other people for her own issues. 
The Savior King is in her home. And instead of seeing him and celebrating him, she can only see the task at hand. She even attempts to use him to accomplish her task to get Mary to help her. But salvation for her wouldn't be found in Mary's help. Just like salvation for her wouldn't be found in Lazarus' resurrection. Salvation for Martha could only be found in Jesus Christ. And he's calling her to see and to savor him. Verse 41. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Again, we'll talk about Mary's interaction at another time. This morning, I want you to see how patient and how constant Jesus is with Martha, whom he loves. He's continually calling herself to himself, right? He's calling her to himself, not just to serve him, but to savor him. Not just to suffer, but to savor him in the midst of the suffering, to see him in the midst of it all. Jesus meets Martha in her distress, and he says, I'm here and I'm near, which leads me to the third point. All that you're looking for is found in Jesus. Whether you're at a funeral or a festival, Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is the life. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means our only hope, our only true satisfaction, and our only, the only rest that we have for our souls comes in Christ alone. And Martha's story is a call to savor Jesus. Whether you're in the rush of life or in the pit of despair, Jesus is there. So when we see and savor Jesus, whether in serving or even in suffering, it allows us to do both, an, as, do both of them as an act of worship and even joy, rather than the self-centered pity party of shame that we tend to make it. That's when we miss him. And I get it. You're not human if you're not struggling with this, okay? This is a call to struggle with this, to see him and behold him. He's promised to never leave nor forsake you. The question he has for Martha and the question he has for you and for me is do you believe this? And more importantly, do you believe in Jesus? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Final point. In order to share life like Christ, you must first share life in Christ. So whether in the hustle and bustle of daily life or in the pit of sorrow and suffering, savoring Jesus is the means by which we share life in him and like him with the world around us. But what does it look like to savor Jesus? What is this, what is, where, how does this get practical here? Back up to verse 25 real quick. Jesus told Martha, whoever believes in me, follow me now, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, why does he say, whoever believes in me? Like, why doesn't he just say, whoever believes me? I think it's the same reason he didn't, when he asked Peter, do you love me? Instead of saying, do you trust me? There's a relational aspect here, and I don't want you to miss this. See, to believe in something or someone brings a very personal and relational element into it. He's not just saying, trust me. He's saying, love me. 
He's saying, be in love with me. Live in me. Savor me. Identify in me. Depend upon me. Follow me. Hope in me. Trust in me. Immerse your very essence into me. Believe in me. Because in him is life. The word translated as in here is the Greek word ice. It's E-I-S, basically. And it's a, a highly relational term that we see used throughout the new testament like we don't just believe jesus we believe in jesus we don't just worship the spirit of god we get to worship in the spirit of god there's a mystery here that's profound it's powerful like we don't just get to pray to god or by the spirit of god we get to pray in the spirit of god there's a relational intimacy that jesus is calling us to like we're not just risen by christ we're risen in christ These aren't just linguistic anomalies. They're communicating the deeply relational reality of our identity as new creations in Christ Jesus. Like this isn't just some philosophy we adhere to or a religion we associate with. This is deeply personal. This is a deeply relational identity. It defines who we are. Jesus is calling Martha to himself to believe in him, not just believe him, and he's doing the same for us now. Like in order to believe him, you got to first believe in him. There's a love that's being cultivated here. And even for her, being, she's being reminded of. Like this seems crazy. This seems wild. I don't understand this, but I know you love me. Now I can trust you. Because I'm beloved. This is what he's doing for us now. In fact, his call to us is even deeper and more intimate than his call to her in that moment. You might say, how's that possible? Like Jesus was standing right in front of Martha in the flesh. Like it's easy to think that she somehow had greater access to Jesus than we do now. But if you think about that, or if you think that way, you would be wrong. You see, this is the gospel. That God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserve to die, and then he conquered death in the grave. The resurrection she's truly hoping for is what he did himself. And when he did that, he paved the way to eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die. He is the resurrection. He is the life. It starts now through the indwelling of his spirit that's closer to us than our own skin. He's available to us in an extremely dynamic way now. Even more so than he was when he was standing right in front of Martha. He's more available to you. John 16 even tells us that his, his disciples, are, you know, they're like, he tells his disciples that it is to their advantage for him to go so that the Holy Spirit would come to them. I've told you before, J.D. Greer says, one of my favorite quotes is that the spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside of you. Luke 11, 10, verse 13, this is so applicable. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, for everyone who asks, receives. They're talking about gifts, like giving good things. So for everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, in another place, he says good gifts. 
Like, he loves to give you good gifts, but he's more concerned with giving you himself. Get this. It'll change everything. He loves to give good gifts, but the greatest gift is the gift he bought for us at the cross. And it's the gift that is available to us even now. All of us, no matter where you're at, no matter how you feel, no matter what happened last night, no matter what happened on the way here this morning, that gift is available to you in Christ. This is how he loves us, by giving himself to us. His love for you isn't measured by how much money you have or how healthy you are or how stable the economy is or how many friends you have. His love for you is measured in how much of himself is given to you. This is the invitation he's extended to us all, is to see him and savor him in the good times and the bad times and the difficult times, on the mountaintops, in the valleys, at the funerals, at the festivals, to enjoy him and be satisfied in him in plenty and in want because he promised that he'd never leave us and he'd never forsake us. No matter how it feels, no matter what it looks like, he's saying, look beyond what you see. This is why we spend so much time in his word. This is why we worship him in spirit and in truth. This is why we pray together. This is why we pray in solitude. This is why we walk with him and talk with him and talk to him even like he's in the room. Because he is. Right? I said this is why we gather and remind one another of these truths and feast on them together. This is why we invite those who are far from him to come and join us in beholding him. But all that doing, guys, and I'm, I'm wrapping it up, I promise, all that doing is the overflow of just being. Being loved. Being still and knowing that he is God and you are not. Just being a beloved son or daughter who sees and savors his glory and goodness and love. Because ultimately, God shows his love to us not by giving us things or changing our circumstances. He shows his love to us by giving us himself. Sometimes he does change our circumstances, and you should pray for that. But you can trust him no matter what. And you can be loved by him no matter what. The way he answers our prayers is by giving us more of himself, which is what our hearts actually need. Let's pray.